Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Michael Eby, a host of the channel. Um, today, we'll be talking to C.N. Nye, professor of English at the University of Chicago, about her new book, Theory of the Gimmick, Aesthetic Judgment in Capitalist Form. C.N. Nye is professor of English at the University of Chicago. She's the author of Ugly Feelings and Our Aesthetic Categories, Zany, Cute, Interesting, and winner of the Modern Language Association's James Russell Lowell Prize. Her work has been translated into multiple languages, and she has received fellowships from the Institute of Advanced Study in Berlin and the American Council of Learned Societies. Um, Cien, it's a great pleasure to have you on. Um, I've been a follower of your work for for some time. As I think I mentioned in my first email to you, a a group of friends of mine actually had a dedicated reading group for this book, which was a lot of fun. Um, So I'm really excited for this conversation. Thanks for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, so this book is precisely what its title advertises. It's a book-length treatment of the concept of the gimmick as it is manifest in contemporary culture and social life. Um, so first off, I'd like to just start with some broad brushstrokes, uh, because when a person hears the word gimmick, it conjures up all sorts of associations. Um, but much of your work centers upon doing the definitional, um, kind of the definitional work of pinpointing precisely what specific minor aesthetic categories entail. So maybe we could just start by getting a quick and dirty definition of what a gimmick is just to get started, and then we can kind of unpack it as we go along. Okay. Um, So a gimmick is, um, the word gimmick is an evaluation, it's a judgment. Um, That's obviously primarily negative, although one of the really interesting things about this evaluation and the kind of form or perception of form that the evaluation is pointing to is that it's a bit ambivalent because um, the gimmick, uh, when you call something a gimmick in everyday language, you're usually, usually saying the thing is, um, you know, um, it's the gimmick is it's not a good thing, uh, uh, that it's not a good thing, right? That right, is, right. Yeah, uh, it's a trick. It's it's a fraud, it, um, and that we're not falling for this uh, trick, right? So, so, um, and uh, uh, so so there, so so we can start with the fact that it's a, it's a kind of negative judgment that nonetheless contains a layer of begrudging admiration in it, or can, and that's the really interesting thing is that um, even though like the gimmick as a concept, as a word that we use in everyday language is primarily a pejorative word, right? Um, So, uh, and it can be used in any, in in, in virtually any context. So for example, um, uh, a dissatisfying film with uh, a kind of a trick ending, you know, um, we'll call that a gimmick, right? Um, And there we mean kind of that there is a device used that, that stands out um, almost too prominently in that work of art as a device, right? We know that we're being manipulated by 
uh, by something technical here that we're um, and, and we're feeling dissatisfied, aesthetically dissatisfied, right? Um, by that, so you know the trick ending, the dream ending. Um, that sort of thing. Um, you know, gimmicks, um, we also refer to them like, you know, um, uh, I've read some pretty hilarious restaurant reviews actually in writing this book. Um, (laughs) but you know, your overpriced meal and, um, it's really, uh, just a plate with a square, um, uh, object on it and some foam and you feel cheated because you've paid, you know, an incredible amount of money for this meal. And it's, it's promised all this delight and pleasure and, and complexity. And really what you get is some kind of stale, you know, tasting foam. So it, it describes the experience of being let down by something aesthetically. What's interesting is that this distinctively aesthetic experience of feeling let down by something at that level um, disappointed by something at that level. Um, and I really want to stress that this is, it doesn't necessarily look like it, but this really is the name of an aesthetic experience. Um, that what's interesting about it is that the experience of aesthetic dissatisfaction that is being registered when you call something a gimmick, um, is actually diagnosing or pointing to something that is in, in many ways economic, which is basically that um, the thing that is dissatisfying you, the object, um, or let's say the device in the object that um, turned you off from that object, uh, uh, seems to either uh, be uh, to be uh, either uh, working too little, right, uh, or not working hard enough. And if we could just sort of like sit with that for a second. So, so this thing is dissatisfying. Um, this, this gimmick is, is a gimmick and not just, let's say, um, a thing, <laughs> right? Uh, we're, we're kind of compelled to call it uh, this uh, because it bothers us, us that it seems to encode either too much labor or not enough. So in the case of like the foam on the plate, you know, the sense is that, Hey, you know, um, this, this plate of food, uh, cost me an incredible amount of money and no one put any effort in this. Right. Um, but the other case is just as interesting, which is that, um, you get a plate of food in the same restaurant and you paid an enormous amount of money for this. And it's just, the plate is filled with, um, just bells and whistles. And like the food has like six layers and there's maybe like a toy stuck on it. Um, and like a little, like, you know, um, sparkly thing. And it just seems like the thing is trying way too hard. It's working too hard uh, to get your attention. So this, this is an experience of something. Um, and again, it's, it's primarily an experience of aesthetic dissatisfaction. Um, that uh, that comes um, out of a kind of spontaneous judgment about the amount of labor that the commodity or thing has in it, um, and this is a very unique thing. I mean, if it, there's not really any other aesthetic uh, concept that we've got in our vocabularies that that is really responding to that particular kind of, of judgment. Um, so you could say that the gimmick, it's an aesthetic judgment that has a sort of, um, another a kind of non-aesthetic judgment, uh, that's wrapped inside it. And, and that, and that, and that is a judgment about the amount of, of labor, 
that uh, that is encoded in 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 the uh, or stored, you could say, or reflected in um, the object that you're responding to. Uh, so, uh, and I guess another way to put it is that you're also saying when you call something a gimmick, uh, you're also uh, negating what you are uh, 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 also pointing to as that thing's claim to having value. In a way, that's the more simple definition of gimmick. Something proclaims that it has value, that it's worth what it costs. And in calling it a gimmick, you're saying, I actually don't see the value where it's supposed to be. And so it's a calling out of value not being where it is promised to be. So we already have two concepts on the table here. Um, that arise out of this very kind of common um, aesthetic experience, uh, you know, primarily negative aesthetic experience. Uh, we have the concept of, of labor, and we have the concept of value. Um, and uh, uh, the other kind of um, factor that that often enters into um, our judgment of something as a, as a gimmick, and it's it's a, it's a factor that in the society that you and I live in, um, um, I'm assuming you're also a U.S. citizen. Uh, you know, we live in a capitalist society. Uh, and, and, and so it, in that kind of society, um, uh, uh, it's impossible to talk about, let's say, the, quote, amount of labor that you feel is um, embodied in some commodity that you're buying or the value that is uh, uh, you know, um, in that same commodity without talking about time. Um, and, uh, so, uh, I don't want to get too abstract here, but just in a very kind of like, you know, um, like, uh, everyday way, uh, it's just interesting to notice that we tend to call things gimmicky either when they seem outdated. So for example, like a, a special effect, uh, a special effect we might call cheesy because the effect has gotten, maybe the effect seemed really exotic and exciting when it was used in a film that you saw uh, you know, 20 years ago. Um, um, uh, but now it's just been around the block a while and it looks pretty tired. I guess the example that I always go to um, uh, is... Um, um, is is just like the the way in which in the, on the television show Star Trek, uh, whenever there was supposed to be some kind of like um, uh, turbulence, which I'm not even sure is like that's scientifically possible, but they would uh, <laughs> the actors were uh, were directed to basically jerk their bodies in this choreographed way, um, and sometimes the camera would move, but usually it was the you know the, the actors would move their bodies, and this was supposed to represent some kind of turbulence on the on the spaceship. Uh, and that effect, um, no one produces a special effect if, for, you know, um, commercial entertainment wanting it to look unconvincing. But, you know, this effect looked pretty unconvincing already when I was watching these episodes on TV as a kid and like as reruns in the, you know, late 70s or early 80s. So, um, and so there, the the jerk seems like a, it's a gimmick, right? It stands out, and it stands out here because it seems outdated. But what's interesting is also that certain uh, things that we think of as gimmicky or have been called gimmicks. Um, and one of the great things about working on this topic is that um, it is uh, well. There's some interesting challenges that come with it too, which I can talk about um, later. But one of the pleasures is that you're you're actually talking about something that 
uh, is in so much everyday uh, a discourse. But um, but going back to the time thing, the other um, uh, reason why things are sometimes called gimmicks is because they actually seem inappropriately futuristic, right? Like they don't, they seem either outdated or they seem to be um, an almost kind of like presumptuous way um, to be about some future that we don't feel like we're actually in yet. And I guess the example here I always go to is um, the very interesting story actually of Google Glass, uh, right? Which when it premiered, um, I can't remember exactly uh, when, I think in 2012, when Google Glass first came on the scene, it was being, um, its designers had marketed it, uh, it uh, as a kind of like a fashion accessory. Like there's a big um, hoopla about its launch. There was a fashion show with, I think, Diane von Furstenberg and Bono. Maybe I, maybe I added Bono. Um, uh, okay, uh, not sure about the Bono part, but um, I know that there was a fashion show where she went down the runway and she was wearing the Google Glass with the, with maybe you know two of the um, products creators. And at the time, it was gonna, supposed to be a consumer uh, product that, you know, um, that people would, you know, use for fun or whatever. Um, but it was a huge uh, disaster. Um, it was very unpopular. People got very upset by that idea that people who were wearing this, um, basically what looks like a pair of eyeglasses with a little dot in the middle, were, were filming them secretly. There were stories of, like, people going to bars wearing Google Glass and getting kind of beat up or insulted or... Um, so that did not work and there was a lot of hype about the product and the product just did not, um, take. And I think it seemed like a gimmick in this case because there just seemed to be, it seemed to be projecting, uh, a kind of world where this product would, uh, in some kind of futuristic way, um, be actually like, you know, uh, fit in in some ways in, in, into the rhythms uh, and patterns of people's daily lives and just flopped. Well, the interesting story here, as, as many people know, is that um, since then, in a very kind of quiet way, the same product that was perceived widely as a gimmick uh, in 2012, um, when it was marketed as this fashion accessory, has since enjoyed actually a kind of quiet um, success uh, brought back into the marketplace uh, now, though, as a tool that businesses buy for workers. So it shifted from becoming kind of a consumer commodity to um, a commodity used in uh, 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 production and circulation. So uh, in warehouses and factories where workers have a lot of real-time information coming in at them quickly, um, so you can imagine, let's say, in, in an Amazon warehouse, uh, and need actually both of their hands free, these eyeglasses um, suddenly became, uh, you know, um, uh, very useful. And they actually have been uh, used um in, in companies as large as Boeing, I know that Boeing workers for sure have, have, uh, have been wearing um, Google Glass. Products have been renamed. So what's interesting about this anecdote is not only does it illustrate the, um, so we have labor, we have some kind of problem with our sense of the amount of work 
that uh, an object is um, embodying. We have a very strong feeling that value is not where it's supposed to be. And we have a feeling often uh, that, that something about the timing of this product is wrong. Its social timing seems off uh, in, some, in some abstract way. Um, so we have an allegory of that, but we also have an allegory or an, ex- or an, an anecdote, really, an illustration of how the one and the same object can be a gimmick today and not be one tomorrow. That's, yeah. So that's like another really interesting thing about the gimmick, which is that it's a very unstable um, form, right? Um, and that uh, has everything to do with the kind of form it is. Um, and and, and uh, yeah, I'll just uh, pause here. Right. Well, uh, yeah, so much of your work kind of, um, it kind of strives to make uh, a causal connection to these hyper-specific affective and aesthetic categories. Uh, here, the gimmick, but also in your previous book, The Zany, The Interesting and the Cute, um, to late capitalist dynamics. Uh, I mean, you make a lot of use of Marxist categories in your work, um, specifically here, Marx's labor theory of value, um, which you've already touched upon. It identifies value with socially necessary labor time, um, which... Uh, the gimmick embodies through its kind of bad timing. You know, it appears too old or too new. Um, but I'm curious because in the book, you seem to favor certain camps of Marxist theory over others. Um, you draw heavily upon uh, value form theory, especially the work of Moisha Postone, Alfred Soon Reitel, Michael Heinrich, and other theorists associated with the German Wert critique or value criticism tradition. Um, you say that the judgment of the gimmick, quote, has or is a value theory of labor, um, a phrase I believe you appropriate from Diane Elson. Um, so maybe for those who are not familiar with value form theory, you could tell us what distinguishes that trend from other, perhaps more traditional Marxist trends. And additionally, what does value form theory do for your theory of the gimmick? And why is it necessary for the book's arguments surrounding the gimmick's indexical connection to broader capitalist laws of motion? Uh uh, great questions. Um, let me just start by saying, though, that I actually don't think you need to know uh, value labor theory in order to see what's happening in the gimmick and to see that what the gimmick is about is in the is is ultimately um, uh, some of the most basic and fundamental laws of the society we live in. Um, so it's, 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 what's, what's so interesting is that you have this, uh, kind of everyday, uh, aesthetic experience, um, uh, and evaluation, uh, that, um, uh, without one needing actually any real theory is already pointing to the connection between, uh, these three terms, which value form theory does uh, help us uh, connect. Um, one of my attractions, I think, to this um, you know strain of Marxism is because it is a kind of um, thinking through the forms of things, right? And that makes it actually very like conducive as a theory of form um, and forms that are collectively produced, right? That um, um, actually, um, you know. Um, I'm not, not without conflating these two things. I mean, thinking about aesthetics is also thinking about form, right? So you have um, this one kind of Marxist theory that takes the question of 
the forms of things uh, quite seriously. So, for example, takes um, the gimmick as a form quite seriously, and that argues um, that it matters in capitalism that um, this thing called value, which is a you know an abstraction, that it must actually take the specific form of money. Um, and 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 uh, in actually trying to um, uh, uh, think about why uh, it, it needs to have this specific form, discloses that the substance of value is something called um, abstract labor. Uh, so so um, labor value theory in Marxism uh, is uh, uh, is is from Stone in particular. It's a theory of an explanation of um, what Postone argues is the uniquely, uh, historically uniquely uh, abstract character uh, of social domination in capitalism. There's, you know, um, and of course, it's not to say that there are forms of social domination in the capitalism that 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 take very concrete forms. Um, but that, that there's something um, that there are these categories, um, these 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 um, you know things like the wage, the commodity, the concept of price, uh, capital, value as let's say the specific form that wealth uh, takes in capitalism, right? Um, uh, you know, I mean, uh, value is let's say a particular form uh, uh, for. Um, uh, for organizing, or, or um, for uh, in which in which uh, wealth appears, you know, um, why does wealth have to take this form? Um, so it actually, um, uh, I think Postone is is right about this um, uh, this 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 kind of um, unusually abstract way that you know social domination uh, exists uh, in 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 the capitalist era. Um, so, um, and I think I would say that the reason why, um, and I do want to stress that one doesn't need to read all this stuff in order to understand what the gimmick is about. Um, you know, cause like, yeah, I mean, that's what's, what's so, what was so startling and exciting to me in writing this book was I just, it, it, it's, it's almost like, uh, and simply being extremely careful about how I was describing the object and then being as true as I could to what the object to me seemed to be, it was eerie, you know, like it was eerie how, how, how much resonance there was between this simple aesthetic experience and, you know, um, um, you know, uh, and the stuff that you find, um, Analyze with such, um, I find admirable precision in certain kinds of Marxist criticism. Um, but I do definitely want to stress that there's 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 actually um, uh, uh, no need to know that stuff to know what the gimmick is about, and that's what is ultimately I find so um, exciting and hopeful even about the experience of the gimmick. Because what it actually suggests is that, you know, um, ordinary people, you know, um, actually, without necessarily even being self-conscious about it, like, actually grasp at some level that is like, at some level that is really about the sensuous, right? Because I mean, ultimately, 
this is a book about the aesthetic and not the economic. I mean, it's about an aesthetic experience that is constantly itself pointing to the way a certain kind of economic society works, right? Um, but, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, sorry, I lost track of my, my uh, I'm there, but um, the, I think the point is really just that, um, uh, that, that people know how the system works in a deeper way than they might even think that they do. Um, and like, so that, and that sort of was, I, 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 of course, I kind of also want this to be true. Like, I like to think of people as always being in the end smarter than they think they are, you know, and I like that. I, I believe that, you know, um, because, these, you could even say the capitalist abstractions themselves have such visceral effects on the bodies of people. I mean, there's a very um, funny uh, moment in um, Gukach where he is talking about the concept of real abstraction. And I, I can't remember exactly what he says, but he says something like, um, uh, I, I uh, uh, you know, that, you know, um, you know, that, that, uh, to say that, you know, something like the wage or the price form is just a mere abstraction is like, if you speak to like, you know, people whose, uh, you know, entire, you know, um, countries whose, uh, you know, where the, uh, level of everyday subsistence has been utterly like, uh, thrown out of whack by fluctuations in, uh, either of these two things, um, you know, you realize that what you're dealing with is an abstraction that has the capacity to run you over like a car, you know, or something like that. So, um, so uh, yeah, and I think that's also the same argument in some ways as what I was trying to say about things like the cute um, in um, our aesthetic categories was that, you know, um, you know, and of course, the gimmick is the, the other interesting thing is the gimmick is just a much more clear cut case of this. But you could also talk about cuteness as being um, a kind of counter fantasy that we have. If you think about cuteness as this idea that, as a kind of experience of pleasure that we take in things that are ultimately. Um, that we feel have no power over us, that we're, we are taking pleasure. We are taking pleasure in our tender feelings. Um, interestingly, sometimes mixed with aggressive feelings, but we're taking pleasure in the appearance of something that seems vulnerable, harmless, unthreatening. Um, as um, uh, people like Marianne Doan and Lori Marish have argued, I mean, that something that almost seems to like solicit our gaze as if we were the thing's mother, um, that, uh, that we can actually see this experience um, um, and the feelings that it kind of uh, rests on and, 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 and evokes as a kind of allegory of our, our, a fantasy that we have about the commodity, the ordinary domestic even household commodity, which is that this thing is something that we actually have mastery over and not vice versa. Whereas, <laughs> um, you know, that, that it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of belief that it's a kind of enjoyment of the idea that you actually have power over the state. But what's really fascinating about the cute is there's a kind of 
recognition in that experience too, that it might be the other way around, that, um, uh, that the reason why we take such pleasure in the harmlessness, unthreatening, uh, childlike or whatever quality of keeping is that it's a kind of escape from the idea that this tiny little thing that seems so harmless actually has a lot of power over you. And to the point where, um, when let's say we try to express uh, or or uh, share our experience of something cute with other people, which is something that interestingly, um, all properly aesthetic experiences require that we do, um, that we can't, that we that we have this compulsion to share them. Um, uh, anyway, um, that uh, we often unconsciously bend uh, our bodies over the cute object that we're professing cute, um, as if in unconscious imitation of it. We make ourselves smaller. We um, we lean over it and we say, "Oh, it's so cute," and our voices change. And so this seemingly uh, weak thing has actually, if you think about it, um, in your moment of judging it as actually something that's kind of trivial and, and, you know, pleasant and, 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 and it's stirring up these feelings of tenderness, but ultimately you're not saying, you know, it's, you're, you're judging this thing as, as, uh, as, as something, um, that, that has no power. Um, it's actually deformed in some ways, your body in an, in a kind of, mimesis of its own image so the question is is like actually what is more powerful here like me or this thing which actually has um almost without me noticing forced me uh to kind of um uh change my posture and change my my voice now that's just a you know um a little bit of the story but i um i do think that um in this experience then and in the way that experience of the cute, um, the distinctive way in which we are compelled to share it. Um, and I do think it's really interesting that, um, you know, there's actually not that much attention comparatively uh, in uh, paid in theories of the aesthetic to you know, what we might call the verbal side of it, the evaluative side of it, which is the part where, you know, you actually, I mean, like, you know, um, there's lots of descriptions of the forms that make us, uh, to which we assign certain aesthetic concepts. But the, but the specificity of the, the judgment, um, and, and here, not just as, the, as a word, but actually as a kind of performance, um, it's, it's kind of surprisingly under-examined. Um, so that's why I like to pay a lot of attention to not just what the cute, the cute means or the gimmick means or, or um, to what the, you know, to the, to the description and, and analysis of, of the forms that are involved uh, when we make those evaluations. But I actually try to pay a lot of attention to, and this is where literature really helps, um, uh, to... Um, the very finite, limited amount of ways in which we um, uh, uh, make the judgment. Um, and um, I feel like the performance of an aesthetic judgment, um, which 
is something that is often also judged. And I find this very interesting too. Um, you, you know, if you really find something super cute and you want to, you're going to feel compelled to make me see it that way too. Right. But you may not succeed because the way you perform that judgment might turn me off actually for some reason. And so even though I actually might agree with you, the thing is cute. Um, there's, there might be something about your performance of your evaluation that makes it ultimately something that I'm going to want to resist being sharing. Um, I find this aspect of the whole thing, uh, super interesting as well. Um, so anyway, um, uh, and I'll, I, I know I've drifted away apart from your, your initial question, but I'll just say one more thing then about, um, I guess the way in which the gimmick, um, in a very uncanny way, almost seems to illustrate in it of itself, um, you know, in itself, some of the major aspects of uh, Marxist value labor theory. Um, uh, I, you know, I'm not the, uh, you know, people have pointed out, um, for instance, Lee Claire LaBerge in a really great book that she's written called Wages Against Artwork. You know, she points out that uh, the last couple of decades, the term labor has seemed to really drop out as a concept, as a useful concept in a lot of critical theory. Yeah. And she also points out that, you know, there's a lot of reasons for this. Um, but, you know, one of the reasons, one of the places where it's really fallen out is actually in Marxist criticism. And a particular kind of Marxist criticism that's different from the kind that I end up drawing on in the book. Um where uh, the idea is that, um, and it's often argued, there's many ways of arguing this, and for different, the main argument is that like we've, um, we live in a, in a, in a hyper-capital society that is just so exploitative that, um, uh, that the concept of labor is, is, is somehow insufficient now to kind of uh, uh, account for all the different ways that, capitalism extracts, um, steals things from people, right? Uh, mines your data, um, uh, you know, it mines even your data at the level of the body, you know, like, like basically steals like your, your, um, it, it makes, it tries to make money through, let's say a fitness app, right? Like your, your blood pressure, Right. So so something feels uh, like there's a shift here where things have gotten so um, intense, let's say, uh, that, um, you know, that people can that there, there's a way to kind of make um, money off of uh, your your cat pics on Facebook. Right. Um, so so the, the, the concept used to kind of uh, describe this shift in capitalism that, is, that, that some Marxist theories argue has happened is real subsumption, right? And it's the idea that like all these kinds of, of activities um, in some ways are now labor. So like, you know, um, uploading the cat video is labor and, and, and so is, um, you, know, um, you know, pumping breast milk. And so if, if this is the case that everything is labor, then labor kind of falls out of the, uh, 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 the uh, discourse, ironically, because it's no longer useful for measuring anything. And the idea, too, that measuring is somehow intrinsically problematic 
right? Than that. Um, uh, but you know, as many people, other people have pointed out, um, you know, the, the whole the, what's what's what made um, what the reason why we arguably do need um, uh, a value theory, a, a, a value labor theory, a, a, a basically any theory that connects value uh, to to labor. Um, it's important here to notice that, like, uh, you know, there was there are definitely theories connecting labor to value before Marx, right? and, and Marx himself was actually quite critical of many of those theories, right? Um, for the specific way in which they went about that connection, which he felt was wrong, and because they were missing certain concepts that he, through his critique of theirs, was able to kind of um, introduce into our vocabulary, like labor power. You know, the idea that what is sold um, with the wage is not labor as such, but actually labor power, which is a completely different thing. Um, and that uh, labor and value don't sit in some kind of, you know, uh, uh, direct equation, but that what uh, is producing uh, value is something called abstract labor, which is a more complicated thing. Um, uh, but anyway, just to cut to the chase, is that this is the only theory that really offers um uh, a kind of theory of exploitation in capitalism, and more specifically, uh, as as and, and how that exploitation is itself structurally hidden in the ordinary economic concepts that we use in our daily life. Um, and it's it's you and and so like even so, the 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 post Marxist um, abandoning of labor. I mean, it's not done. Uh, it's done with a kind of Marxist, you know, um, in, the, in the spirit of Marxist critique. And I, I don't, um, don't want to dismiss that work. Um, I do think that it does not offer as accurate a description of the world that we live in, ultimately, or provide concepts that enable us to talk about how... Um, unpaid labor, non-labor, actually. I mean, you can talk about non-labor through labor. I, I think what the post-Marxists want to do is they want to talk about all forms of, of, of um, uh, you know, appropriation that happen in our society that happen outside the wage, right? But you still can't get away from the fact that all of the non-wage unpaid labor in the world we live in is 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 um that it's 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 uh and i hope i don't sound too like you know um uh pedantic here but that it itself is structured by um uh the wage the, the question of who gets a wage and who doesn't and and where and when you know um uh is is extremely important for organizing the world as a whole and those it's, it's very true that many people in this planet are not waged workers. Um, that doesn't mean that their their lives and the the the, the, the um, their appropriation of their bodies is not itself informed though by the wage as a form. Um, so uh, so that's why I think that's why it cheers me. <laughs> As unpopular as uh, value labor theory is in the American Academy, it's not popular. Um, um, 
I think Lee Claire is absolutely right about this, that it's dropped out and she's really um, much more, more succinct and, and clear on, on for me than me on, on the reasons why. <laughs> um, that's a really great book. Um, uh, this but, is the wages uh, for artwork book. Yeah. Uh, uh, or no, Ed, sorry. It's wages against artwork. Wages against artwork. artwork right. Um, I hope I got that right. Um, and of course the title is, um, kind of riffing on uh, wages for housework, which was like a, right. a whole you know, feminist um, reproductive labor movement um, in the 70s um, that also dealt with many of these same questions, the structural relationship between the wage and the non-wage, the way in which labor always implies non-labor um, within, within uh, Marxist theory, right? Um, so... Uh, so that's why it cheers me to um, it, 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 at a moment where this, uh, where as Lee Claire points out, the the concept of labor is dropped out of theory, and um, um, you know everyone. It's very common to read like just like just like just oh, we all know the labor value theory is untrue. I mean, I don't know, like we do, like there. Is, yeah, there is this ordinary experience that um, is very visceral, but but that actually um, suggests that some version of this way of understanding the world is still working for people and is still actually enabling people to be critical, you know, um, uh, because in the end, um, as much as we often love the gimmick, even while we hate it, and that's, of course, what makes it, I think, extra interesting, um, uh, that there's such, um, and I, I also want to stress this because it's actually really easy to miss that, well, gimmick as a negative judgment offers a lot of pleasure. It really, people delight, people, people are, take pleasure in calling out gimmicks and debating uh, uh, with other people about whether things are, are gimmicks or not. Um, some critics have argued that this is, you know, this is, um, you know, when Edgar Allan Poe uh, already was making these like literary hoaxes, that he was activating he, he, something of the same idea of, that people take pleasure in in critique. So it, it cheers me to no end that in ordinary uh, everyday experience, we have this um, this concept that is showing how um, a that uh, critique and pleasure are not opposites, right? That they're not like. Uh, and in particular, that uh, criticality and aesthetic experience are not these two things um, that should be separated, um, as I think a lot of contemporary criticism wants to say, that these are kind of inherently incompatible, um, that if you're doing one, you're not doing the other. Um, but also uh, uh, reminds us that we need these concepts in order to... Sh- um, uh, just to see, um, um, you know, um, uh, to see how, to see basically uh, that there is a way of even measuring um, uh, people's exploitation um, and, 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 uh, in, in, in capitalism and, and that it's not this kind of immeasurable thing where we can no longer, um, you know, uh, throw our hands up in the air and say, well, we just can't measure value anymore because everything is under real subsumption. Everything is value and everything is labor. So what's the point? Um, 
uh, yeah. Um, I wonder if we could like talk a bit about the sort of cultural cultural examples you bring up in the um, book. Just that not only are expressive of this theory of the gimmick, but also that you argue embody kind of uh, certain aspects of the gimmick. And one one um, concept that you talk about at length is the novel of ideas. Um, and you try to taxonomize the novel of ideas. In particular, you use Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain as kind of a prototypical example of the novel, novel of ideas. Um, and you ultimately conclude in your discussion of this form that the novel of ideas errs more towards drama than philosophy, even though Magic Mountain is known for Hans Castorp's philosophizing with various characters at the sanatorium. Um, so I guess there's kind of two parts to this question, which is like, first, what is the novel of ideas in your view and what makes it a dramatic rather than a philosophical or even a novel, strictly speaking. And uh, you also you also argue for the centrality of time in the genre. That is, the novel of ideas refers to a novel whose prose departs from a novelistic temporality. And in what way is that kind of related to the bad timing of the gimmick? Okay. Uh, thanks, Michael. Um, super question. Um, yeah. So this. Uh, so yeah, there's a big chapter on the novel of ideas in this book. And the reason why it's there is I just wanted a, um, I wanted a literary example um, uh, of, of, of something kind of big. So not just like one thing, but like a, a genre here, like a subgenre of the novel, right? Um, uh, that is basically haunted by haunted by um, uh, the gimmick. Because certain forms, um, given that the gimmick is such a specific thing, it stands to reason that certain things uh, are going to um, have more of a gimmick problem than other things. Um, in the case of the novel of ideas, uh, you know, it, was, it sort of came out, for, quite frankly, I've just this gut feeling I'd had that like every novel ideas of ideas that I'd ever read, including ones that are quite, you know, um, famous that I, I enjoyed a, a great deal, like uh, The Magic Mountain uh, or even Brewster, you know, um, that there was something uh, contrived and stylized about the form, right? Um uh, and so that uh, uh, the uh, the um, if the if the gimmick is a device that is kind of jutting out of the artwork, basically, right? It's calling attention to itself, um, either because it's is it seems to not be uh, working, doing enough labor, doing enough work for the object, or because it's trying way too hard there's a kind of obtrusiveness right to the device when um we are talking about gimmicks in in art um, um something that should should not be sticking out or sticking out right um and it seems to me that the presentation of um pre-existing like ideas ideas that are kind of like signaling the fact that they are philosophical so i'm not here talking about every novel actually of course, and as many people have said, as Mary McCarthy says in particular, it, you know, 
there's no such thing as a novel that doesn't have ideas, right? Um, the, the, the difference here is now we're talking about ideas that are clearly and explicitly um, uh, imported from elsewhere, that where you can actually, when you see them appear in the text, you can tell, okay, this actually is not an idea that's unique or generated by um, the novel I'm reading, but this is an idea that is being presented precisely as imported from a different discipline, let's say from philosophy or from science, right? Um, so, uh, so I, uh, so uh, I, I, you know, um, so I taught a class on the novel ideas at Stanford um, many years ago, and one of the interesting things in kind of setting up that syllabus to begin with was noticing also how many of these were comedies. Uh, you know, um, if you think about Thomas Mann as an example, but um, uh, we also read Charles Johnson's Faith in the Good Thing, uh, which is a comedy. It's a kind of um, even the oddest text in that syllabus, um, which, you know, um, I put on just as a sort of provocation, which is Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit, is has been... I, th I think it's Judith Butler who describes that text as a, a sort of comedy where consciousness is always like, I think she describes consciousness in that text or uh, likens it to like Mr. Magoo. who's like some kind of character <laughs> in the car and black, blacking out, but then like getting up and it's fine again, you know? Um, okay. Well, that's a bit of a far a reach, but um, <laughs> about this, this, um, this subgenre, many of them are comedies. And if you think about uh, more contemporary uh, versions, um, I mean, not all of them. I, th I think, you know, there's a lot of seriousness in like Zabald, right? But there's, 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 there's a, um, uh, Ali Smith's, um, novel Artful, which is also a very kind of, uh, metaleptic, uh, self-reflexive reflection on the novel of ideas as form because it, it like, um, like, uh, like J.M. could say is, um, uh, Oh dear, I'm blanking out on the name of that novel. Elizabeth Costello. These are both novels that were um, uh, disclosed uh, as being based basically on lectures that both of these writers were asked to give at universities. And both, um, I think both, uh, both novels paratextually, if not internally, signal that they are basically drawn from lectures, right? Um, and in fact, the Katsaya novel, Elizabeth Costello, so this is about, this is a novel about a, a woman, a very passionate vegetarian and animal rights activist, but her profession is, is actually a is fiction writer, you know, much like Costello, uh, uh, the Katsaya himself. It's, it's the, the chapters are, um, for the most part, um, I, hope, I hope I'm remembering this correctly, but, um, Many of the chapters in the book, with the exception of the last chapter, which is very odd, um, are, um, uh, you know, um, uh, non-narrated, almost you could say, uh, uh, representations of speeches that are given um, on, on, uh, on, on various topics. So on uh, not eating animals. Um, artful... Uh, uh, is different, um, but 
Anyway, the point is that these novels, they deal with serious topics. They're comedies, I think. Um, so there's that to think about. Um, and to me, this is already kind of pointing to um, the centrality of the gimmick and defining this entire genre and the oddness of the interesting fact that so many literary critics come so close to saying this, that like what actually makes the novel of ideas unique as a genre is its willingness to flirt with the form of the gimmick. Um, um, and it's the fact that it is intrinsically gimmick prone. Now this is, this is, um, it's of course very dangerous and wrong in some ways to say that something is an X is gimmicky inherently. Right. Um, but I want an example in the book of, of some kind of aesthetic object where um, even thinking about the problem of that genre with the gimmick, people would say, oh, yeah, I know what she means. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, even if you love, uh, 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 you know, uh, even if you love uh, Thomas Mann, which I basically do, actually, I actually love the Magic Mountain, but not for reasons that people might think that I do. I actually love it because it's hilarious. And, um, so, uh, so, so yeah, so I, I wanted it for, for that, for that reason. Um, uh, but the, here's the key point, the novel of ideas, um, its main devices always push us away from the elements that really help the novel stand apart from other genres from the, from the get go. So, for example, um, and it's not just drama. So it's, it's you know, many people, there's, there's this joke even, and it's also worth pointing out, the people who, uh, the critics who express skepticism about the, let's say, gimmickiness of the entire genre, tend to be the people who write in that genre. So this is a really tricky chapter to write because, you know, the whole time I had in my head, okay, well, you know, um, the argument, well, you know, um, you may not appreciate this, you know, this, this, this form, but, um, you're just basically an aesthetic conservative and you think the novel should look like every novel should look like, um, well, I, 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 I don't want to, uh, you know, that, that novels should look more like Middlemarch and that anything that deviation from that in the modernist tradition that is experimental, you're saying is not a good novel. That's just, that's called like anti-modernism. It's called conservatism, you know. But then when I point out that actually the, the, the arguments against the novel of ideas, the, the, the expressions of its problematic nature, it's aesthetically uh, dissatisfying or problematic nature. Uh, a, it uses characters as mouthpieces. So it, it basically takes characters and kind of guts them and makes them basically just spokespersons for a particular philosophical stance, which happens in uh, the Magic Mountain, right? Um, uh, people, um, so you then lose a robust sense of literary character, which is one of the things that the novel arguably, um, you know, uh, excelled in uh, because a novel, unlike drama, can express interiority in a much more uh, uncontrived way. It just even the, the, by saying um, Michael thought, you know, I've already like, you know, been able, and just that, that you don't have that kind of, you can't have that sentence on, in a play really. I mean, you can of course, but like, um, so, um, so, uh, uh, oh, just to finish the thought. So the point is that like um, some of the most, um, uh, 
strongest criticisms of this entire genre as gimmick prone have come from the practitioners of that genre. And that's when you realize that there may be something more here than simply a matter of, you know, a personal taste where one doesn't, you know, um, that there's something about the genre objectively, let's say, that doesn't make it inherently gimmicky, but makes it gimmick prone or in danger of being called gimmicky in a way that sets it apart from other, other genres. Um, so you can see like this, I thought this is a really important chapter because, um, uh, it does talk about a genre that is also increasingly, I think, popular to write these days. Um, uh, but it's also incredibly tricky because you can see the problems that one confronts, right? Like, well, um, you know, but, but so the other thing to say now is, or just to like wrap up this thought is that um, um, the, the, uh, the, the need to communicate pre-existing ready-made ideas that are imported from some other place in the novelistic form puts a lot of pressure on the novel. And uh, in the case of characters who are, are uh, made to act as mouthpieces, it really pushes the novel in the direction of becoming a lot like a play. So when you read uh, Elizabeth Costello and you have these chapters that are basically dialogue, dialogue, or just monologue, you know, you could for, for, for in, in a way, be reading a, a play. And, and of course, what is being represented here is someone delivering a lecture, right? Um, but there's the other side of this, which is that, um, uh, so, 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 so the pressure to communicate ideas pressures the novel into sounding at times more like a play than a novel, and other times makes a novel sound like an essay. Um, that's the other side of it is the essay. So uh, drama and essay, um, these are actually some of the forms and genres that the novel at the very beginning of its actually relatively short life had to set itself apart from. Um, so, uh, so yeah, um, I think I'll take a little break here. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, that's great. Um, well, I, I also loved your reading of the film It Follows, David Mitchell's 2014 psychological horror film in which uh, a teenage girl named Jay becomes uh, hunted by a murderous supernatural entity after a sexual encounter. So in order to rid herself of this entity, she has to pass on the entity through an, to another through another sexual encounter. But when the last person in the chain gets murdered, the entity begins to hunt whoever had it last. So there's this kind of infinite uh, deferral. And if you, you, you've essentially given us this kind of extraordinary chapter length treatment of, of this film, which you read as a metaphor of kind of um, the post 2008 financialization of daily life through the omnipresent reliance on credit. And you argue that the film demonstrates that credit is um, a device of managing deficiencies and excesses of money by structuring time, which clearly bears a relationship to, um, you know, the bad timing of your theory of the gimmick. Um, so I wonder, would you say that credit has become credit has become a kind of socially hegemonic gimmick in the 21st century? And um, 
And I guess if so, why have you chosen It Follows to untangle this problem? And I also found your reading of the ending to be to be incredibly novel. And I'm wondering if you could kind of like re- recapitulate that here at the risk of spoiling the film for those who have not seen it and maybe like tell us why you think it might or or what you think it might say about the 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 economization of the family and kind of neoliberal or neoconservative family values in the 20th century. Uh, thanks. Um, so, uh, yeah. Um, uh, well, let me start with the credit question. Um, is uh, uh, so? Yeah. Um, the uh, the finance is actually a really interesting um, uh, topic uh, for um, uh, this book, right? Because. Um, I knew that there wasn't any way to not address it um, in, in thinking about the gimmick as a capitalist form, right? Um, uh, I mean, if, if the gimmick is an experience of value not being where it was promised to be, <laughs> you know, uh, that's exactly the, the uh, 2007, 2008, um, uh, you know, um, uh, crisis in a nutshell, right? Value was not where it was supposed to be. Um, and, um, there wasn't anywhere it was supposed to be, or there was much less than anyone thought there could be, um, and so forth. Um, but the idea too, that like, um, uh, the film really struck a chord with me, um, uh, again, because the allegory seems so straightforward. I mean, uh, you have this horror story, which is also a comedy too, in a way, uh, I, I still haven't really thought through, I, I still have some thoughts that I haven't quite really worked out about why so many of the examples in this book about the gimmick um, were um, uh, either her, uh, belong to the genres of, of, of either horror or comedy or um, actually to the place where something, uh, to a genre where they both coincide, the sort of edge of comedy and horror. Um but uh, the idea that, like, you could be in some ways uh, responsible um, that uh, for uh, something uh, that um, uh, that you could actually owe something uh, through a transaction uh, without actually uh, knowing it, um, if I can remember correctly. So the um, J, uh, the whole thing starts with with sex, right? It's a, it's a sexually transmitted curse that's circulating in the film. Um, and as you point out, as you, as you said, so the idea is that, um, you contract, uh, the, um, obligation, let's say, <laughs> uh, by having sex. Once you have sex with somebody who passes on this obligation to you without your knowing it, you are then responsible to find somebody else within a certain time to pass, uh, to, to also, uh, pass the obligation onto if you do not yourself pass on the obligation by having sex with somebody, um, you forfeit, uh, your life. That's right. Right, Michael? (laughs) Yes. Yes. Remembering my own examples. Right. (laughs) Um, so the idea is that, um, uh, in, in this exchange, suddenly there's a kind of obligation that you, and you've entered into this huge chain of obligations, um, uh, without, without knowing it. And, um, you know, to me, that was very much a kind of, um, you know, uh, a kind of, um, 
reflection of uh, the way in which so many of our personal household debts uh, were chopped into pieces and resold in different um, uh, packages uh, all uh, to, to people without anyone actually ever knowing. So that even in simply like owning, owning money for a student loan and paying that loan off, um, that your payments had already been sold uh, to somebody else. Uh, so you end up being part of this huge system of credit and debt, even if you yourself, um, uh, um, uh, you know, um, you know, have no knowledge of, 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 uh, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, of, of what exactly has gone on. And so the whole system crashes, um, when, when, um, the, uh, you know, this is sort of, uh, exposed, um, the ending of the film you ask about. So, um, so there's all this like reproductive stuff, uh, that's going on here with, I mean, the sex theme, um, with this horror film, um, which is also an allegory of credit. And here's the thing about credit is credit a gimmick that this is actually not clear and, and actually, and not being clear, it actually gets to a truth about the gimmick, which is its instability, right? And this goes back to something we talked about earlier in the conversation, like the gimmick form, um, you know, something that's a gimmick today could be, you know, um, a part of everyday factory production tomorrow. It, it You never exactly know um, because the gimmick is a product of a system uh a complex system of commodity production and valorization. Um, and um, so uh, is it uh, the question of whether or not any commodity uh, uh, ends up being um, worthless or not is, is never truly known. But the question of finance itself and credit and debt and whether or not it is um, uh, you know, uh, a kind of, um, uh, what's the right word to use here? Um, there's been debates even within Marxist theory about whether credit finance is, uh, something that is essential for capitalism to run properly or whether or not it's, let's say a gimmick, right. Or whether or not finance is a peripheral to the way, let's say the quote, real economy works, so the idea that, okay, we had all these errors in 2000, this is not my idea, but this is a idea, the idea that, okay, in 2007 and eight, we had all these terrible excesses, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, there are all these crazy, um, there are all these complicated financial products flooding the market that no one really quite understood. Um, uh, you know, and if we just correct this, if we just stop uh, over-financializing our economy and get back to the real economy of, you know, workers and factories, we'll be okay. This is sort of a populist argument that is, that, you know, that, you know, there's a version of it that Trump made, right? I mean, so the real economy will save us. Um, we have to get away from the excesses of finance, which are parasitic and on the real economy, you know, and that's a kind of like, you know, loaded word there. Right. Um, so, um, uh, there's a kind of argument that, that finance is always also the sign of, um, uh, uh, the sign of, um, a, a shift, uh, in the fortunes of, uh, 
the geopolitical, let's say, power of a nation, a state in the capitalist system. This argument is a very influential argument. It comes from um, Origi, uh, the long 20th century, uh, where he argues that financialization is always the sign. When, when it, basically, when a economy, a national economy, turns away from commerce and production as its main source of value production and shifts to um, finance, real estate, insurance as, as a place where you get higher rates of profit, right? Um, of course, capital naturally goes to where the highest rate of profit is. So it shifts its investments from production and commerce to finance. This is a sign of something actually um, uh, the end of that uh, state's um, historical uh, spike in power. So here, financialization is always a sign of, I think the word he uses is, is autumn, right? The autumn of a system, which means it's going to go into winter because, um, and he points out, he's, he's a historian, he points out this is the trend in, um, he, he even starts to study like before what many would consider, you know, the advent of industrial capitalism, like with the Dutch, um, but points out, uh, or the Italians even, um, but just that uh, there's a kind of interesting correspondence, let's say, between the historical moment of the financialization of an economy and the fortunes of that economy in the larger system, where the former indicates um, a kind of like falling apart of, of the, the, uh, the latter. Um, but then there's also arguments. And I think, um, uh, you know, um, you mentioned the financialization of daily life. That's Randy Martin. He argues this. Other Marxist theorists, including LaBerge, uh, argue this, is that finance is actually um, in the pores of capitalism. And it's not a gimmick. And it is actually something that's needed for the basic, if you want real economy even to function. Because in order to hire workers, I mean, at the most basic level, you need you may need to get bank credit. You know, to to um, to start your factory. So, um, but there's an interesting tension here uh, in the theory about whether finance is um, peripheral or central to capitalism or not. And I feel like that is a kind of interesting uh, mirroring of the. Um, uh, you know the undecided, the the, the 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 uncertainty, let's say, that surrounds the gimmick. Um, I, I had a very interesting discussion with somebody. So one of my favorite examples when I talk about my book um, to people is um, of a of a of a gimmick, um, and of course, a gimmick can take so many different forms. It can come in the form of a fancy cryptocurrency derivative it can be the foam on a plate in a restaurant but it can also be like a kitchen gadget right so i talk about the um banana slicer so there's a state that you can actually buy um stainless steel uh banana slicers on amazon um I actually wish somebody would start giving me them as presents so I can start. <laughs> actually, if you, Michael, if you go to Amazon, there's actually like a, an astonishing variety of, of banana slicers that can. Wow. Yeah. I'm going to um, look at, look into that once we get I off know. this. Oh. That's always my, you know, example, but then like someone pointed out, you know, I guess that this device that seems so superfluous and lazy and whatever, like if you actually have a certain kind of disability could actually be very useful. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's similar to the Google Glass thing. I mean, Google Glass is, was really a joke, um, obvious gimmick, uh, promoted with gimmicks, 
um, when it was uh, first came out, but now is actually uh, like a no no big deal just tool, right? Um, and, um, and and here's another funny example. So um, I have a uh, uh, an egg cooker from Aldi, which mm. I really love. Um, it's like this like thing you put your eggs in it, and you can like poach them or hard boil them. There's like a little cup, and you put the water in. And obviously, um, boiling eggs or poaching eggs or cooking eggs um, is something that is relatively simple. Um, uh, and so, um, I was in um, I was in Denmark, and we were talking about gimmicks. And someone in the audience mentioned egg cookers as gimmicks, and I was like, "No, believe <laughs> 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 that. That's terrible. That's How so dare horrible. you!" No, I know. <laughs> What's interesting here, though, can I, here's the point. This is always an interesting point when in thinking about aesthetics, um, intellectually or philosophically. Here's here's a point where we could get bogged down into some kind of relativism, so-called problem, which is like, wait a minute, how can this thing that you're calling a thing be actually a thing if, like, you know, you think this is a gimmick and I, you know, I think this is a gimmick, you know, so maybe there is no real gimmick because all of us find something different gimmicky. And that's always kind of a distracting, um, it seems like it's a problem in, or not a problem, but it seems like to contest the materiality and objectivity of aesthetic phenomenon, right? Um, at sort of at first, right? Like how can, how can there be a materiality and historical materiality and objectivity to the gimmick when, you know, um, there's no objective, like when there's no, when, well, look, the fact that the fact that you uh, find the the, um, egg cooker gimmicky and I don't, well, Who's to say it must be subjective, right? Um, I, this is actually a it's it's a distraction. It's a false problem because yes, it's obviously true. It's obviously true that due to eight hundred million factors, you know, um, um, ranging from cultural to and, and and social class maybe to just temperamental, right? Everyone is um, going to find different things gimmicky, right? Um, so maybe many of the examples in my book, for example, that I thought of that I deliberately uh, used because I thought they um, had a reputation, let's say, of being called that, right? So even if you didn't find, even if you love, if, if you don't have never thought of, you know, uh, Magic Mountain as a book about the gimmick actually or reflecting on the gimmick, um, that you would... Um, still see how someone could see that, right? Um, um, even though it seems to me very obvious and not a scandal that people for various differences find different things gimmicky, that's what that's kind of not important. What is important is that when you ask the different people why they think the, the particular thing they think is a gimmick is a gimmick, you're going to hear a really striking similarity in the explanations as to why, you know what I mean? And that to me is where the historical objectivity of the phenomena lies, not in the actual, you know, the objects it's, it's in a way, not about the, it's, it's, it's justification. So let's say, you know, um, let's say you're a huge, 
let's say you are a huge fan of the Preck novel um, Avoid, which is a novel that Preck wrote without using the letter E. Um, uh, and um, uh, and let's say, uh, you know, um, and you can easily imagine someone who, you know, isn't particularly fond of avant-garde literature thinking this is really a classic case of the gimmick. Uh, someone else saying this is actually a technically brilliant novel. Um, this is actually a truly brilliant novel. And, um, uh, you know, um, but, uh, and then meanwhile, uh, I, who think that The Void, A Void, is a brilliant uh, uh, novel and not a gimmick at all, um, find your um, banana slicer or your, um, let's say, your juice throw machine, um, <laughs> uh, which is actually a real. <laughs> Uh, did you like that part? I, ha- I have to say, I'm really glad I got the description of the juice room machine in there. No, I'm so- glad. Yeah, you're giving me some stuff to add to my Amazon wish list here. <laughs> the, the, the juice room machine was an $800 um, juicing machine for reels um, that apparently juiced pre-purchasable plastic bags filled with juice ingredients. So... Um, and it was $800 because it connected to the internet and it meant that the juice machine could tell you when you were, uh, it, it would know when it was, you were running out of juice bags and then it would, um, order new juice bags for you to squeeze. <laughs> so there's this whole kind of like image here of like squeeze. It's just like, it's the whole thing is just, um. Uh, but anyway, so let's say you've got a juice from a machine, um, and uh, I, I, you think, um, and uh, or let's say I have a juice from a machine. You like Parek, and you, I, and and um, uh, anyway, the, the point is that like the justifications that we give for why, the, let's say, the juice from a machine is a piece of crap, um, and that 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 your purchase of it was uh, unfortunate, and um, that you, it's really an enormous, um, overpriced, overrated, uh, uh, you know, uh, gimmick. Um, um, and the reason for why, uh, someone else might actually say that, well, look, I actually am not a big fan of this novel. I think it's device is really contrived and blah, blah, blah. It's going to be, those reasons are actually going to sound eerily alike. And that's where you see that this, this, the object is in a way, it could be whatever object. Um, and it often is in the case of the gimmick, (laughs) uh, like to not focus on the object it's more and what the, the objectivity of the phenomena really comes out in an interaction between you and me where we're t- we're actually just trying to discuss and justify our aesthetic judgments uh to one another um and um i don't think it's an accident that this moment of sociality where um, we are actually explaining or trying to explain or justify why our evaluations were the way that they were that we see a kind of consistent pattern here of something that is real because we can all describe it. And we, um, and, and regardless of what we, what we object, we decide to put in that box, that there is a box and the box, the gimmick box is, um, uh, is, is, um, a box that is, that is basically indicating something about, uh, the way that value is uh, bound to an abstract sense of labor um, in our culture in a way that's not good. It's just that's the way it is, right? Um, uh, so yeah, it's it's the again, it's the it's the objectivity of the box and not the um, the objectivity of the aesthetic experience is the box and not the thing that is put inside the box. Mm. 
Um, throughout the book, you you kind of both implicitly and explicitly argue for a late capitalist coziness of contemporary art with consumer culture, and you know you describe the situation into in which the two spheres increasingly blend together. And the reason I say implicitly is because your method, not only here but in our aesthetic categories, rests upon using examples from both what is traditionally thought of as, you know, the cultural sphere, as well as things like, um, you know, you talk about the smiley face in marketing, cheap credit and subprime, subprime mortgages. Um, in addition to novels, critical theory, films, video art, musicals, etc. Um, I mean, what I mean is that your theoretical method kind of attests to the thinning of the line between the cultural sphere and the broad, broad, the broader commercial sphere uh, represented by fashion, advertising, entertainment, um, and even financial strategies. Um, so I wonder what power or function, if any, do you think is still uniquely the purview of the traditionally thought of cultural sphere today? Or do you kind of envision that there has been this sort of late capitalist hierarchical flattening? Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, I think I think something like for you is actually useful here because, uh, you know, um, he actually, Borgia um, was trying to ask this question, which is very kind of simple but sort of deep, which is like, why do particular artists create the works that they create? Why does, let's say, um, why does Toni Morrison write like Toni Morrison, right? And not like um, Maya Angelou, right? Um, why, why do her novels look this way, not that way? Um, and in trying to answer this question, he ends up giving us this whole complicated, not actually not complicated, but actually this interesting like kind of mapping of What's he, what he calls fields of cultural production, right? And how it points out that there's different fields of cultural production. There's like um, restricted ones, you know. Um, um, so like, you know, um, um, and, and then there's a larger commercial one. And they're all kind of on this, they all can be mapped in relationship to each other. But every, no matter how small or, non-commercialized let's say uh, so every every field of production can be measured according to its distance or closeness to the larger commercial sphere right so random house is basically that right um but let's say like small price poetry um which has its own um you know set of readers and consumers and writers um and values um is going to be a more restricted field of literary production but it still does have a relationship to the other field which is one of antagonism or um you know what i mean it has you know, and Borgia will argue that in the avant-garde, let's say, um, you know, the values are flipped so that like distance from commercial success is a value here, right? Um, and that the fields have different, um, the fields have separate orders of, um, um, of uh, have different, different, different ways of organizing what he calls cultural capital, right? Um, so, uh Anyway, um, I think the Borgia was helpful in answering your question because you actually see that there's no one, 
like you see actually how um, there's never getting away from the tension between the commercial and the non-commercial yet and thinking about culture as a whole. And thinking about culture as a whole is, 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 is requires thinking about um, how different cultural elements relate to one another, right? Um, um, but when you actually look at some of his diagrams, like you just realize that even though that tension is the structuring tension in some ways and thinking about culture at large, um, that it contains so much nuance and variety. So, which makes it hard to say that there's any once and for all overall flattening, right? There's always that kind of tension. And even if the tension is in the form of like a kind of like identification, you know, that that there's still something that's like structuring all of culture, which is this tension between the commercial and the non-commercial. So, yeah, you know, it's funny because I feel like this question can be so charged sometimes and contempt, let's just say even my little field, which is like literary criticism, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, it's also interesting because because the discourse around this is is set up in a certain way. I often people often think that like um, the things that I write about, I um, like I I'm, I endorse. I mean, for example, like uh, <laughs> like I actually can't stand Hello Kitty. I really cannot stand. I mean, I never was able to, uh, you know. But you know, uh, but having written about it. I think, you know, so it's, it's, <laughs> there's a kind of celebration here of the low over the high. It's more of a, and, and this is what's really great about the gimmick. And I think one of the reasons why there's a chapter on the novel of ideas in that book, in conjunction with, you know, writing about it follows is I actually wanted, I needed people to see this is like everywhere. This is, you can, you can have high gimmicks too. Right. Um, right. So the novel ideas is very high gimmick. Um, um, and it's in the end, it's really even less a question of like the high and the low. Like it's even less about like juxtaposing them on purpose to like be cool or whatever. It's, it's more like, well, part of it is to show, look, this form I'm trying to track is so pervasive that it appears really everywhere. So that's kind of, so in, in a way that almost suggests that like, not that high-low distinctions don't matter for different reasons, but just that the form can't be contained that way, right? Um, that's just like a very simple point. But, um, um, but um, it's more that like uh, when you think about, you know, um, when you think in, in when the when you think along with the gimmick, the way the gimmick actually itself, the experience of the gimmick, and and all the things that surround that experience, including the pleasure that we have in identifying things as gimmicks and debating about gimmicks and so forth, um, as indexing something about um, uh, the way wealth is measured in capitalism and our discontent, let's say, with that measurement, our, our distrust of, of appraisals of, of, of value, right? Which is ultimately what the gimmick is about. Um, um, you start to wonder if like the low high thing isn't actually also about other kinds of um, 
let's say distributions of uh, let's not value but labor. Um, I really owe this thought to Chris Nealon, uh, pointed it out to me um, after the fact, but like that the low high thing actually is um, kind of like syncs up with another kind of tension that gets foregrounded in this book, which is the way in which um, um, uh, there's a split, let's say, between capital intensive and labor intensive commodities, um, right? And that, um, uh, you know, um, many analysts of the contemporary uh, ranging from um, uh, uh, Chase and Smith to um, uh, end notes um, to uh, uh, another writer I like a lot, Annie McClanahan. I mean that um, that uh, that that um, a, a very interesting shift in our uh, economy that seems very um, contemporary is the kind of uh, peak in the rise of the rise of um, labor intensive jobs, which are basically service economy jobs, right? So the the, the displacement of industrial manufacturing by a service economy. That's been the big story of our century in some ways, our half of the century. Right? I'm not sure what the fate of all this is now, but like, um, uh, so one, one data point that's often cited is, and I think, I think Jason Smith cites this in his Brooklyn rail pieces on this, um, on automation is that, um, uh, um, uh, that one of the, the, the jobs that in, in England that have, uh, um, peak the most have uh, in the last, you know, 10 years or so have been in service jobs like uh, healthcare and teaching. These are labor intensive jobs, not capital intensive jobs. They're jobs that are actually difficult to automate. Um, and uh, where the, the, the most uh, uh, money expended by the capitalist who runs, let's say, the, the, the healthcare firm is in wages um, and not in infrastructure, because again, these jobs cannot be, they cannot be it's hard to make these jobs more productive. And so um, uh, a lot of Marxist thinkers have actually been very alert um, to uh, the, the rise in, in service jobs because um, it, uh, it's a very delicate thing, too, that suggests, like, well, these jobs can only exist as long as there's demand for them, too. And when people start to run out of money, you know, you can't hire a dock walker. You can't hire. And so, but these are all the jobs that have had um, this is where you had the most growth actually, in the super wealthy capitalist economies. The most growth has been in that sector, right? And these jobs that are actually hard to automate, um, um, uh, uh, that are, again, uh, labor-intensive and not capital-intensive. So, um, you know, Chris was like, uh, maybe this high-low thing is really about, you know, capital-intensive, labor-intensive, you know, and, and um, in any case, um, I don't, I mean, I, I, um, I feel like everything in culture is touched by the commercial. I mean, I think, um, I think that, uh, but, um, even if it's resisting it actively. And that's, that's also what kind of Bourdieu's, the whole point of the graphing of the maps, the, the, the mapping of the fields of production is to, is to actually make that same point. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, well, I think I've taken up a lot of your time. I, I had said 50 to 55 minutes, but we're 
I think we're pushing 90 at this point but uh it's been i mean there's a ton of more things i want to ask you but um i think this might be a good place to end our conversation for now uh but thanks yeah but thanks so much for doing this and uh for this wonderful book and um yeah i hope to do it again uh, what are you working on anything anything new or uh not really i have some like I have some, I have some, um, thoughts about like, uh, things, but they're actually too kind of like messy to describe. Yeah. yeah, Okay. (laughs) um, Hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully. Um, yeah. (laughs) Okay, cool. Well, looking forward to those and, uh, um, yeah, thanks again. Uh, Michael. Yeah. Thank you for reading and for talking with me today. Of course.